Good. Well, we come to our Bible reading now. And if you'd like to find in your Bibles the first letter of John, and you'll find that right at the back of the New Testament, before the books of Revelation and 2 and 3 John and Jude. But the first letter of John, our associate minister Josh Johnston has been preaching through 1 John for some weeks now, and this is the final sermon in this series, and his title is going to be Continue with the Real Jesus. Now, I'm going to be reading um, from different parts of the letter, so do get your fingers ready to flick back and forth a little bit, but there are going to be short passages from chapter 1, then chapter 2, and then chapter 5, and I'll tell you the verses as we go along. So first letter of John, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now to chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Then chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And then on to chapter 5 and verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and may it be a blessing to us this morning. Well, good morning, and do have uh, First John open in front of you.
We're spending uh, one last uh, Sunday on John's first letter uh, so that we can draw out uh, some of the key lessons in it uh, one last time. We've been seeing that it is a letter that uh, beckons us to continue with the apostles and their gospel, a letter that brings great reassurance for those who abide with Jesus when many have fallen away, a letter of great reassurance when those, who have, when those who have abandoned the gospel now claim to have a better one. And we've seen hanging over this letter is the specter of those who have departed from the apostles. And so we need to be clear on what kind of departure is in view. We've seen uh, the reason John was writing was because 2.19 Some had departed, had gone out from us, the apostles. Some had drifted away from the faith, fallen away, hardened themselves to the apostles and the gospel and the life of obedient faith. Those who had begun to reject the faith that they once claimed, turning their backs on Jesus, exchanging the real gospel for a more palatable one. John's letter has a lot uh, to say about denominations that have walked away from the Bible and the real Jesus, but we do a disservice to John and to ourselves if we think of the message of this letter is one that, that speaks only really to archbishops and moderators. It absolutely does speak to them. They do very well to heed John, but he speaks to each of us. And he speaks to any and to every church because drifting away from the, from genuine churches and the genuine gospel, abandoning the apostles' preaching, ignoring the plain teaching of the Bible, exchanging the real Jesus for a fictitious one, isn't something that's done merely in the official doctrines of a church. It's something that anyone can do in their hearts, becoming more and more hardened to what God has said. Wanting to find instead a gospel, a Jesus of our own making, to our own liking. And so we need to be clear that the departure that's in view in this letter is not simply a a physical one. John's concern isn't that some people have left the local church family, although they have. John has in view a theological departure, a, a drift in belief, a turning away from obedience. And so real saving faith. John has in view a hardening towards relationships with the true people of God. Giving up on Jesus. Now it can be somewhat fuzzy to us. The difference between a physical departure and a theological drift. It can be fuzzy between leaving a church. And abandoning the church. And the gospel and Jesus himself. I'm sure practically. Practically all of us know of someone who has left a church, perhaps this church or another you've been, been involved with. And there can be all kinds of reasons for that. Circumstances, work, study, etc. Although I would say not to take such a, a decision lightly ever. It should never be a, a small thing, a casual thing, or a straightforward assumption that uprooting from a church is going to be fine. But there can be reasons John isn't speaking about people leaving any one local church. He is speaking about people falling away from the apostles, hardening themselves to the gospel, 
ashamed of or scorning God's word and doing so by claiming to have something better. And so we need to be very careful in applying John's message as if we were saying that anyone who leaves our church family is abandoning the true gospel. That isn't what John says. And so we must not try to equate these things in simplistic ways. The the departure, the falling away, the drifting John has in view is abandoning the apostles and the gospel and Jesus, not any single church, as if any one church could have the, the claim on the pure gospel. However, whilst that isn't the precise situation John speaks to, such a situation of leaving a church, that could also be the beginning of or the culmination of a drift away from the true gospel. Turning your back on a local church family could be or could become turning your back on Jesus. And we also have to be honest with ourselves. Remaining, continuing in a local church family isn't the same thing as continuing with the apostles and with the gospels and with the gospel. It could be that we sit week by week in church, but really our hearts are beginning to be or are increasingly being hardened. Much like the seed in the parable of the sower that fell among the thorns. The thorns grew up and chooped it, and it yielded no grain. Jesus explains that seed is those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So John's message is a message for all of us, lest we drift away thinking we might find something better than the Lord Jesus, something more to our liking. And so keeping that in mind, I want us to look again at four key things in John's letter, four key things about life in this world, a whole world that, according to John, lies in the power of the evil one, a world in darkness, but... It's a dark world that's passing away. But whilst it is passing away, John says to us, firstly, we must continue with the only true Christ. We must continue with the only true Christ. The conflict in this letter is all around the real Jesus and alternate versions of Jesus. Look at 2.22 that we read as one example of this. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. We mustn't be fooled by talk of of God. There'll be endless amounts of people who are happy to talk about a higher power of some sort, or a, a force behind the universe, or some sort of vague, general, lacking in definition conception of God. We mustn't be fooled even by talk of Jesus, when the Jesus being spoken of is clearly not the Jesus of the Bible. When we begin to hear things like, well, my Jesus would never do X or Y, we need to discern if that is simply a Jesus of someone's own imagining. When the real Jesus enters the conversation, he is utterly divisive. It can be no other way. Because he is either the aroma of life, 
or the stench of death. He is either the stone of offense, the stone that was rejected, or he is the cornerstone, the whole foundation of the life of faith. And John makes clear in this letter that there will be all kinds of people who want to claim to be within the bounds of Christian faith whilst reconstructing the very foundation of it. There'll be those who love to talk about Jesus, his wonderful ministry in all kinds of ways. We've seen that from all kinds of denominational leaders, haven't we, in this country? Those who've abandoned the supreme authority of the Bible, but they still love to talk about Jesus' wonderful ministry to the poor, or his wonderful healing ministry, or his wonderful spirit-baptizing ministry. But the telltale sign of a false Christ is when Jesus' sin-bearing work is put in the shadows or denied. Uh, By the water only, Jesus, as we saw last time. A spirit-baptizing Jesus who's who's spiritual and life-giving, well, that doesn't cause any offense. It's really rather palatable. But a by the water and blood Jesus is a different matter. His work, his purpose in coming, his glory cannot be separated from his shed blood. The blood that washes clean the sins of the people, his people. The blood that makes us clean and gives us life so that we're set free from sin. And not so that we simply and happily jump back into a life of sin. Jesus' glory was chiefly and supremely displayed and declared through, the, through his death on a cross. A death for sin. When there's distaste for this central aspect of Jesus' work, then an opposing, a rival Christ is being spoken of. An anti-Christ. And Jesus' sin-bearing death is distasteful to the world for all kinds of reasons. It has very clear implications. If Jesus' glory is most truly seen in his sacrificial sin-bearing death, then nothing can be more significant about Jesus' work and ministry than what he has done to be the propitiation for our sin. And if nothing is more important than Jesus dealing with sin, then nothing is more serious than our sin that he's dealing with. Sin is the great problem for humanity. And there'll be all kinds of contortions undertaken to try and change or obfuscate that reality to redefine sin, to try and elevate other aspects of Jesus' ministry, to focus more on talk about a vague spirit, or to talk a lot about God's love. A love that isn't really concerned with telling me that I need to change. But the way Jesus is spoken of throughout this letter is as the glorious resurrected Jesus, the one who conquered death and sin. The one who is the propitiation for our sins, the one who is our advocate with the Father, the one who has appeared in the heavenly realms to destroy the works of the devil, and in his priestly role to take away our sin so that it can really be said that we are definitively without sin. That's Jesus' work. Now, don't mishear me. John isn't saying Christians won't commit sin. He he makes that clear in chapter 1 that people who claim such a thing are deceived. They call God a liar. But he does say that the resurrected Jesus in his high priestly role is advocating for us 
the whole time. And it is as if we have Christ's perfect record. So that in a very real way, the children of God do not sin. Even though that isn't obvious right now. Jesus' glorious work is that he is the once for all sacrifice for sin. If that's denigrated or denied or downplayed, it's another Jesus being spoken of. And buying that other Jesus is falling away. It's leaving the apostles behind. It's abandoning the gospel that they've passed on to us. John reassures us, the only true Christ is the only savior from the overriding problem humanity faces. We don't need more than him. And we mustn't have less than him. And because this is true, this becomes a truth which divides. The truth is exclusive. It excludes all false Christs, all anemic Christs, all Christs of our own or our society's own invention. The only true Christ either exposes or encourages. John's message is to continue with the real Jesus Don't fall for another one. Don't think there's any way to be in relationship with God outside of him. Don't think that sin isn't a problem. Don't think that everything will be okay in the end, outside of trusting in the real Jesus. But be assured, trusting in the real Jesus does deal with all these things. James Philip says, remember that all the enemy's wiles are directed towards one objective in the Christian's life, to get him away from the cross. All the enemy's wiles are directed towards one objective, to get the Christian away from the cross. Friends, ignore those who undermine Jesus. Ignore those who diminish the crowning glory of his ministry. Namely, his sin-bearing death. We don't need to be like the departed in this letter. Those who claim to be without sin. Those who wanted to find another way. Those who wanted to redefine the gospel and Jesus and sin. All that they had was a claim and it was a false one. If we continue with the only true Jesus, then a day is coming when we will be seen by all to be without sin, really and truly. We must continue with the only true Christ. Well, second, in this dark world, both the the children of God and the children of Satan have obscured conditions. Both the children of God and the children of Satan have obscured conditions. The Bible makes clear that The Bible makes clear what is true of the church and what is true of the world. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The Bible makes clear what is true of the church and what is true of the world. And we need such objective clarity because reality won't always seem like what it is. 
Not all who talk about Jesus and claim to belong to Jesus really do belong to the real Jesus. It can be a, a discombobulating thing to have people fall away who've spent, who we've spent many years in happy Christian fellowship with, maybe serving alongside, studying the Bible with them. And it can be confusing to us when people we've known as, as Christians for a long time begin to take aim at us. They begin to, to head in a very different direction theologically that's at odds with Orthodox Christian teaching, where they're increasingly uneasy with things that the Bible makes plain. And maybe we find that those who once were dear friends seem to be tense, terse with us, unfriendly toward us, opposed to us. Some will have experienced such things from those who now reject the notion of God completely, but it can happen with people who will make a great noise of being Christians, where identifying as a Christian will be prominent in uh, their social media profile. It won't matter that every other description in their profile would undermine such a claim as they campaign for or promote things contrary to clear Christian teaching. And of course, their new trajectory will prompt vitriol towards those who remain faithful to the Bible, or those backwards inhibited Christians, the not very like Jesus Christians. No, no, we've moved on to a more nuanced faith. We look at the Bible with 21st century eyes and minds, and so they sneer at our ignorance, our naivety, because we take the Bible seriously and plainly. When that happens, it can be an incredibly unsettling thing, can't it? And so John's concern is to reassure the faithful. It isn't you who are getting things wrong. There are bigger realities at play. And John reassures by making plain uh, what is going on. He goes to great lengths to, to do that. To show us what's true about those who continue with the apostles. And also what is true of those who once were part of the visible church but who have drifted away, fallen away, rejecting the orthodox and historic Christian faith. The reality is that when the Jesus of the Bible is abandoned, when the message of the apostles is sidelined, that isn't a small thing. Even if it comes with lots of still Christian language. Giving up on the real Jesus is trampling underfoot the Son of God. It's profaning the blood of the covenant which sanctifies us. It is to outrage the spirit of grace. That's language that Hebrews uses to describe such things. But the language of 1 John is equally as serious, but with perhaps an even darker hue. John describes those who drift away from Jesus, those who fall away from the faith. He describes them as children of the devil. There is no in-between. So when someone we've shared a Christian past with becomes hostile towards faithful Christians, when they no longer submit to the Bible in all things, when they drift away from Jesus, sadly, grievously, what is going on is that they are aligning themselves as enemies of God, trampling underfoot the Lord Jesus, profaning his blood. They belong not to God, but to the evil one. 
There is no in-between. One either rejects Jesus, ignoring and scorning the apostles, and so they belong to the world, born of the evil one, or one is in relationship with the apostles, and so with Jesus and the Father. It isn't a spectrum. It's binary. It's one or the other. And notice the language that John uses. 2.22, as we read, anti-Christs, rival Christs. Or in uh, 4.1, we didn't read it, but you can have a look. It's the language of false prophets. There will be many who claim to speak the truth, but whose work is to deceive. John's language around this is language of deception, anti-Christs, like Christ in some way, but not him. False prophets, those are the particular message to teach, but it's untrue. This age will see many who masquerade as something other than they are. Many will drift away from Jesus, but still claim to belong to him, to speak for him, obscuring their true condition and attempting to destabilize the church. But John makes it clear to reject Jesus, to to fall away from him, to refuse him, is to be at home with the world. And it's to be in the family of the evil one. But John is also very clear that if we continue with the apostles or if we come to them and receive their gospel, if we cling to Jesus or come to him, well, then despite present appearances, despite what others might say, we are then truly the children of God. And that won't be most fully and truly seen here and now, but it is true And one day it will be revealed unmistakably. We will see, we'll see in our next point once again that our love for one another gives sight to the unseen gods. Our love gives us confidence for the last day. But there's something about seeing other people's love, their their righteousness, that spurs us on to imitate it, isn't there? I'm sure many of us have found that with various things in the Christian life. We have observe a godly older saint conduct themselves and it's helped us afresh to to live the christian life to want to live the christian life Uh, i think for uh, for myself in this hospitality is an example when i was younger it was all very well for people uh, to tell me that christians are to be hospitable but what does that look like where to start it wasn't until i saw uh, some fine examples of this in people in in this church where they showered hospitality upon me and upon others that it clicked with me. Not only could I see what it looked like to do it, I wanted to do as they did because it was beautiful. And here's the profound reassurance that John gives those who are the children of God, who really are the children of God. Maybe not obviously now, but it will be one day. The reassurance is a day is coming when we will appear as what we really are. And look at the key to that. Chapter 3, verse 2. We know, that when, uh, we know that when he, that is Jesus, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. 
And as we see him in all his glorious perfection, in all his beauty, far greater than any godly example in this life that we want to aspire to and, and follow, as we see him, we'll be transformed indelibly to be like him. All is not as it appears now. Many will masquerade as children of God, but those who really do love and trust Jesus will one day be seen to be all that we are now by faith. Because one day we will see Jesus. And on that day, all that is obscured will be made plain. But until then, don't be surprised and don't be swayed by those who claim Jesus, but have walked away from him. Well, third, John gives us an overriding command, an overriding command, love one another. Love amongst the brothers keeps us in the truth. The language of love appears throughout this letter and also the language of hatred. Uh, Look at chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I wonder what your first thought is when you think about Christian love, brotherly love. What are the associations? Is it a word or idea or uh, actions that you prefer not to think about? It's all very be nice to people kind of stuff, and I don't really like people. Or is it a vague thing that you you know you should do without much of a shape, without much genuine motivation for it? Is it a have to of the Christian life rather than a get to? Ugh, I guess I have to love this person rather than I get to love these people. Well, John speaks very clearly about love. And it's a vital thing in this letter and a vital thing in a Christian life. When we are clear that this world is enthralled to Satan, when we remember that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, love becomes a vital thing in the, in the life of the church. Because with all the, the false prophets around, with the many antichrists that will come, there is much that will try to pull people and will pull people away from the truth. When the characteristic position of the world towards Jesus and his church is hatred, then love is all the more vital. Not just to distinguish between those who are from God and those under the power of the evil one, although it does do that, but because love is a very powerful means of keeping us in the truth. Have you ever thought about that? A key defense for the church against the myriad of dangerous ideas from false teachers is that we love one another. In this dark world, love is the manifestation of our faithfulness to God and to one another. His love towards us, seen chiefly in his sin-bearing death, prompts love to flow out of us. And if we have Jesus, if we cherish the real Jesus, then we are assured that God's love will flow out of us. It may begin with a trickle, but we can't not love when we're born of God. 
And John is clear, the, the shape of love is keeping the commands, the law. That reveals to us what love looks like. Loving God with all that we are, and loving one another as we'd want to be loved. But more than that, love shaped by God's love, which is what John's talking about, is a means of ministering powerfully to one another. John says our love gives sight to what is unseen, and it foreshadows what will happen at the last day. Look again at 4.12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. His love is perfected in us. 4.17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Our love gives sight to something of the unseen God. So brothers and sisters... Being concerned for one another's temporal needs, our health and well-being, caring about the preservation of life, when we are there to support and care for those who are ill and feeling, when a growth group rallies round and goes to their beleaguered member when they can't come to them, when lifts are given and meals and all kinds of things are poured out in love, that is taking seriously God's law and giving sight to the unseen God of love and is a real means of keeping people in the truth. When we're concerned to maintain our our brothers and sisters' belongings, having integrity with one another and how we deal with things, when we borrow something from someone, a a car seat for family that are visiting or, or something like that, giving it back in at least the same condition as we received it, or or better even than when we got it. That is taking God's law seriously. And giving sight to the unseen God of love. It pictures life with God. And is a real means of keeping people in the truth. When we protect one another's character and reputation. At granting generosity and the benefit of the doubt. When unfavorable things are said. Or witnessed. That is taking God's law seriously. And giving sight to the unseen God of love. And it's keeping people in the truth. When we seek our own happiness by making others happy, sharing our joys with others, sharing our our holidays with those who can't get away themselves, sharing our, our cars with those who can't get to church, sharing our homes, our families, our dining tables with those who don't have a family of their own, that is giving sight to the unseen God of love. When we suffer all kinds of insults and abuse, all kinds of opposition and sacrifice for maintaining the truth in a world of lies, when we're poured out and spent in serving Jesus and his church, when we've just given up our last free evening in our week or our Saturday to prepare a Sunday school lesson, to practice music for Sunday, all so that brothers and sisters can worship the Lord, the Lord alone, and be ministered to and assured of God's grace. That is the gospel at work within us, That is taking God's law seriously. It is giving sight to the unseen God of love. And that helps to keep one another in the truth. When the gospel is at work in us, prompting and provoking love from us, that speaks of something beyond us. It pictures in small ways what God is like. 
And it pictures how he will deal with us on the last day. Our love is no small thing. It's a real means of ministering to one another. And in a world that's under the power of the evil one, a world engulfed in darkness, love shines like a light into this dark world. And the light it shines is the light of the world to come. Our love for one another exhibits that Satan doesn't rule over this individual life. And our love for one another another exhibits that Satan doesn't rule over this people. But rather Jesus does. Well, fourth and finally, John tells us, makes clear, we have an overcoming confidence. An overcoming confidence. We don't need more than the gospel passed on to us by the apostles. And we don't need more than the gospel's fruit in our lives to see us through to the end. The gospel is enough. Now, the Christian faith is highly relational, and at the same time, it also makes the most exclusive and critical claims. And how easy is it for us to default to listening to and trusting people we know and like? Well, my my father says this, so that's what I think. My sister does that, so that's what I'm going to do. Or my friend recommends this, or swayed by this, so I'm, I'm going to give myself to that. It is good to have people we trust, those who are godly and have great clarity about the scriptures. It's good to lean on them at points, to get advice and wisdom from them. But that cannot ever be the key to what we believe and think and do. Because what people claim about Jesus really matters. And if all kinds of people make claims about him, and false prophets are around, and antichrists are around, then how can we be sure? What is the key? What's the final word? Well, there is one relationship that's key to what we believe and think and do. A relationship that must not and cannot be bypassed. One relationship we cannot do without. And that relationship is with the apostles. Yes, it's ultimately about a relationship with the Lord Jesus. But with claims and counterclaims about him, the means of knowing Jesus, of belonging to him, the means of cutting through all that's false, is by listening to the apostles. Those who saw, heard, and touched the glorious resurrected Christ. If anyone knew the truth about Jesus, if anyone is to be trusted to know Jesus, it is those who were eye, ear, and touch witnesses to all that Jesus said and did. Chiefly, those who witnessed his death and his defeat of death. Those who witnessed him die for sin, but also defeat sin by being raised, by being vindicated. Well, we have a God who doesn't leave us wondering, who doesn't leave us in darkness. Yes, we'll be faced with all kinds of rivals for the place of truth, all kinds of competing views on Jesus and church and spirituality and identity. But one stands tall amongst them all. One stands true amongst them all. One stands glorious amongst them all. The message of the apostles. The apostles bring us the truth about Jesus. But look closely at how it comes to us. Back in chapter 1, as we read. 
1 verses 1 to 2 make clear that the apostles saw, heard, and touched the resurrected Lord Jesus. And that's what they testify to and proclaim. And then look at verse 3. The purpose of their proclamation is that you too may have fellowship with us, the apostles. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's how we have relationship with the real Jesus, by coming under the ministry of the gospel, by receiving the gospel word, by responding in faith to the apostolic preaching of Jesus. Don't be fooled by those who say things like, well, Jesus never spoke of that. It was only the apostles. Or I only listened to Jesus, not to Paul or John or Peter. The apostles and their gospel is the means of relationship with the Father and the Son. And so we don't need anything new. We don't need some fancy message or fancy religion with bells and whistles. We don't need to be perturbed by those who go off claiming something better, distorting the Bible. John reassures. He says, those who hold on to the apostles' teaching, you have it all. He says in chapter 2, I'm writing to you little children because... Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. That is he whom the apostles testify to. John says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. John says in chapter 5, this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Faith in the apostolic gospel. Faith in the real Jesus. Again in chapter 2 he says, having the word of God abide in us, listening to and loving the apostles' gospel, that overcomes the evil one. It seems so ordinary, so bland, so plain. Where's the earth-shattering experience? John says it is in holding on for dear life to the old, old story. And so the very last words of his letter from verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't buy it. Continue with the real Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Father, in a world filled with deception, in a world where so many are enthralled to the evil one, grant us your grace to be fertile soil for your gospel word, that it might bear fruit in each and every one of us. 
and that it mightn't be, mightn't be snuffed out from us. And so we ask that you would help us to help one another never let go of our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.